This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. When you want the best, you have to act fast, especially when hiring for your business. You want to find the most talented people before the competition scoops them up. And the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds top talent fast. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com Spotify. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. Brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. It's Friday and that means we're going to have a quick run through some of the hot news stories from the last week. I'm Matthew Loveridge and today I'm joined by Jack Luke and Simon Bromley. Simon, what have you got for us this week? So this week, this is not really a news story, I suppose, but um, I updated the kind of lightweight climbing bikes buyer's guide, which is very good. You check it out on bikeradar.com. But there was an interesting point um, by a guy called Robert Chung, who some of you may have heard of. He was most famous for kind of devising the Chung method of aerodynamic testing uh, using a a power meter. But he had this quote that he put on Twitter. It's actually learned back in 2019, but it was basically weight weenies should be rolling resistance weenies. And he attached this graph and he basically it shows you that you can kind of convert the differences in rolling resistance between two good tires into kind of equivalent weights or mass that you would add to your bike and how much, you know, to, to sort of see the same difference that it would make. And so what kind of order of magnitude are we talking? So, yeah, um, it's, it's pretty, so it's pretty significant. Things. So say the difference... Um, between say a GP4000 tire, a very, very good tire, and then a GP5000 tire, on a flat road, the kind of equivalent weight difference that you'd have to sort of add to slow you down is, you know, essentially unlimited because obviously on a flat road, weight doesn't matter. (laughs) So I know this this is a real uh, hobby horse of yours, isn't it, Simon? The fact that aero vastly trumps weight yes so but he but the interesting thing about the graph is that it also has a kind of slope a gradient slope in percentage so you can kind of see how much that difference carries on 
even on a hill. So, and it goes from obviously 0%, so a flat road, and then up to 10%. So 10% is a relatively steep, steep climb. But even even on a 10% slope, the difference, the very small difference in rolling resistance, I think it's only sort of maybe three or four watts according to kind of independent tests, it's still worth more on that 10% slope than 500 grams of extra weight, which I think is pretty big. That's pretty significant. So is this going to be informing your buying decisions going forward? I mean, it already was. You know, I've already, you know, got stupid time trial tyres on my bike with no puncture resistance. But yeah, it just, it makes me feel like a very smart boy. It's an interesting thing because obviously with climbing and cycling in general, people are obsessed by weight. And there is absolutely no question that as more uh, all-round bikes, I say, sitting right next to the new Trekamonda, which is, or was, I should say, they're very much lightweight focused all-round platform. It's kind of mutated, for the lack of a better word, into a more all-round package. So it's still competitively light in the context of a disc bike, but it is definitely more inspired by aerodynamics at all speeds. And it is noticeable that, yeah, they might be heavier than a couple generations ago, but as we've seen, aero is potentially more important. With all of that said, and this is Matthew's hobby horse, uh, <laughs> weight is a much more tangible thing. And I still think that for the consumer, it doesn't matter how aero a bike is unless you are racing. Um, I still think that for the lay consumer, uh, a very low weight number will always be a tantalising option. I, I do tend to agree. It, we're at an interesting point, obviously, where a lot of the new bikes are kind of getting down to the 6.8 kilogram minimum weight. If the UCI were suddenly to drop that figure, I wonder if we'd see a rush to manufacturers again focusing on super lightweight bikes when they've kind of stopped doing that in the last couple of years. It'd be really interesting to see. Anyway, moving on, Jack, what's the hot news in your world this week? Well, this week? follows on from a pretty broad trend this year in mountain biking. This was good, supposed to be an Olympic year and cross-country mountain biking is, is a part of that. And we've seen this enormous number of really cool new cross-country bikes coming out. But this week we saw the Orbea Oith or Oits. I'm not sure they're Basque. I'm not Celtic brothers, <laughs> but, you know, uh, uh, just a difference in location. Anyway, the new Oith is incidentally their best-selling bike. But like every other cross-country bike in the market, it's got a little bit longer, a little bit slacker, a little bit more rad. Instead of the more standard 100mm travel fork, we're seeing 120mm travel fork on certain uh, certain models. And they've also upgraded it with their OMX Carbon. So this is previously seen on other Orbea bikes, but it's their highest grade of layup. It's very light, competitively light. Um, and Orbea claims that compared to the previous generation of the bike, you're getting down, well, I'd saving 250 grams off of a medium, uh, dropping it to a claimed 1,740 grams, including the shock for the Orbea frame, which is, I mean, that genuinely is crazy for a, you know, a full suspension mountain bike frame set. Yeah, you're maybe adding a kilo odd onto, a, a, you know, a road bike frame. But bear in mind, that is with all the suspension hardware, a shock. That's a really impressive figure. Um, the weight... That is pretty amazing. The way in which Orbea makes it's quite cool as well. They uh, laser cut the individual sheets of carbon to kind of reduce weight and reduce waste. Um, it's a more efficient way of doing things. Um, but like I said, the geometry has also changed significantly, though I don't think you listen to this podcast to hear me reel off geometry figures. Um, 
Would would you call it a down country bike? Are we using that term? I could do down country for those that aren't up to date with the hottest cycling Illuminati marketing trends is basically the name that's been coined for kind of longer travel, more rowdy cross country bikes. Um, They make a lot of sense for a lot of people. They're very fun. You know, you're, you're not getting some big burly, you know, monster truck of a bike. There is some kind of engagement on even more gentle terrain. And the stuff like the Specialized Epic Evo, the Scalpel SE from Cannondale, and the Yeti SB115, they all fall into that category. Um, to answer your question, though, I think, yeah, some of the builds in the Orbrea range definitely go into that spectrum. But I think the bike is more focused, certainly the build we've featured on site, on your kind of more traditional cross-country racing. Um, it's been really cool to see all of this come out so quickly. It's been great fun working for a cycling website as well because it's been an almost impossible task to keep up with all the uh, the new launches. But when we do eventually get back to cross-country racing, I think we're going to see a lot more of the Orbea. Coming from a roadie perspective, seeing the latest generation of super lightweight cross-country bikes come out, has I find myself looking at them and thinking... That looks like a really good gravel, like what a gravel bike could be if it were just admit that it was actually kind of a rubbish mountain yeah. bike. Because they are so light, like you say, with these frames that are now getting, in the case of the hardtails, they're getting into mm. road bike territory. Obviously, if you had a rear shock in, it's a bit heavier. But they are seriously cool machines. And that, that Obeya is a really good looking bike as well. Just briefly on your note there about the uh, the road frame comparison. I remember not the current generation, but the previous generation of the uh, Stump Jumper Hardtail. Oh, no, sorry, not Stump Jumper, the Epic Hardtail. When that first launched, its big selling point was the fact it was actually lighter than that generation of Tarmac. So that would have been the SL6, I would have thought. Five, no, the SL5 maybe? actually back then. But still, it was lighter than their road frame at the time. And you can build these up to ludicrously low weights. Um, yeah, very cool, very fun to ride. Simon, could a could a Pew Pew mountain bike tempt you off your TT machine? Yeah, yeah, I think I think for sure. You know, it's something I haven't really done that much of just because, you know, I haven't got sort of space for a mountain bike in, in the garage or, well maybe when i get my garage i will have space but yeah like for sure it, they, they, it's super cool isn't it i, I mean okay yeah it's, it's one of the things everyone sort of talks about weight which kind of puts me off a bit because i i just don't think it matters but um they you know they do look really cool and and i think you know the nice gold paint job on this new Orbea looks very very bling so yeah it, it, looks <laughs> it like really, a really really cool, does really cool bike i think it's interesting actually the weight versus everything mountain bike is don't really talk about aerodynamics much and maybe that's going to be the next big I've thing. I've done some ludicrously Jack? fast starts in the very few cross-country races I've done. I mean, scary fast starts in, in bunches and of course it will be. Of course aero will be the next thing they talk about. I mean, in, uh, in enduro and downhill where you are descending very fast for, you know, up to 10 minutes at a time, of course you should be thinking about aero. The UCI has some quite stringent rules around. I remember that for a two seasons maybe in like the 2010s skin suits were a big thing in downhill racing and the UCI very quickly banned them because they were non-traditional in the sport but you know aero gains in the bikes themselves of course it'll be the next thing they need to think of something to sell us bikes anyway Matthew what have you got in show and tell today I'm going to tell you about the new Merida Sculptura Endurance which is a brand new carbon endurance bike that launched a few days ago and which I would describe as gravel adjacent. So 
obviously gravel, massive, massive riding category now. Loads and loads of dedicated gravel bikes out there, which take really big tires. A lot of them have 650B and they're taking like a small mountain bike tire. So up to like 2.1 inch or something. A lot of people are riding gravel on 45 mil tires. So the Merida is not one of those bikes. It's a road bike that can dabble on mixed surfaces, which I think is quite an interesting category because there are a lot of bikes now sitting in the middle doing that. Big examples, obviously, the Specialized Roubaix. The Merida Sculpture Endurance takes 35 mil tires maximum and it ships with 32s, so properly squishy compared to just a few years ago when an endurance bike would have come with 25s or maybe 28s. And another thing that I think is interesting and notable about this bike is that it has mudguard mounts. We bang on and on about the fact that bike makers repeatedly refuse to put mudguard mounts, sorry, fenders for the North American listeners, on their higher-end bikes. This is a proper carbon bike. Uh, prices start at £2,000 in the UK, and they go up to three and a half, depending on spec, and it has real mounts to take full mudguards. I think that's great. Are you fans of mudguards, Jack? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think that distressingly few modern bikes these days, performance modern road bikes, come with mudguard mounts, so I always celebrate when one does because I don't like being wet and I don't like my bikes getting dirty and mud guards are nothing to be ashamed of they're excellent I wish more people did it very briefly though I would like to chide you for the use of the phrase gravel adjacent because that feels a little bit like down country and as if you're trying to trademark something for yourself Matthew I don't think your intentions are entirely pure here I'm going to add that to the urban dictionary as soon as we stop this recording I, I do think though Oh, this sort of nicheification of cycling is really annoying from a consumer point of view because obviously it is largely to do with marketing. People have been riding kind of gravel on road bikes for years. But at the same time, we're living at a time when we have better choice in this type of bike than ever before. So even if people constantly inventing new terms is irritating, I'm very pleased, for example, that Grode doesn't seem to have caught on. On balance, this can only be a good thing. And I'm really glad that bikes like this Merida exist. Incidentally, another key, well, I say key, another significant launch in the world of gravel is the new Canyon Grail On, which is the electrified version of Canyon's rather distinctive biplane handlebar gravel bike. Simon, how do you feel about double-decker bars on bikes? I, you know, I should say I haven't ridden it, so um, I can't sort of comment on the effectiveness of it. But the look of it, you know, I, I do find a little bit offensive. It's um, it seems, you know, it, it sort of seems to me like a kind of solution in search of a problem. And obviously it creates a, a load of other problems in terms of, you know, changing handlebar height and, and, and obviously changing fit and things like that. So, you know, I don't think it's something... I have very particular tastes about uh, handlebars and stem lengths. As is kind of you know anyone who's ever heard me talk will read literally any article <laughs> yeah, you've written in the last three months. No, so it wouldn't be for me. I mean, you've you've ridden one of these handlebars, haven't you, Matthew? So you probably better place to talk about it. So I've I've I tested quite recently the cheapest carbon model of the Grail, the standard Grail, not the uh, e-bike version, and it is a really good bike. And I actually think that in its standard form, aesthetically, it works better. The e-bike, it's got much, it's got the chunky down tube and stuff, and I don't think it looks as aesthetically balanced. 
But my real concern was the stuff about like fit and sizing and the lack of flexibility that the bar affords you because a simple thing like changing a stem on a normal bike on a grail, you have to change that entire cockpit. It's complicated. And because nothing is where it is on a normal bike, actually assessing what your fit's going to look like and making sure that you get the right size components is not totally straightforward. It's not intuitive if you're used to looking at standard stack and reach measurements and stem length and bar reach and stuff. So I have mixed feelings about the Grail, put it that way. I went on the original launch, or the, sorry, I should say the launch of the original Grail in 2018. And when we first published the news about that bike, the site went bananas. Like it was unbelievable how offended people were by this cockpit. Personally, I found it, it was kind of okay to use it in the drops, but like Simon said, it didn't really solve any problems I thought I'd had before. Um, it, oh, it almost makes more sense to me in the electric bike form because it's so far out and so controversial that it's just like a marketing coup. It's so genius. Um, but having seen it in the flesh, our editor, George, lives quite close and I went for a ride with him uh, on it. And it's pretty bulbous in the f- flesh. It's got kind of like a, a beluga-like profile um, and uh, I don't know. It's quite upsetting, if I'm honest. Maybe it's a grower. It certainly is it's a grower. Just, it's grown just... enormously. It's it's ballooning, one might say. <laughs> Any final thoughts on uh, electric gravel bikes, Simon? Yeah, I just, uh, it's, you know, I suppose, yeah, I talked with Warren and Rob about this on a podcast a few, maybe a couple of months ago now for this. And, and I'm just, I, it's, I, I do find it quite hard to work out who these bikes are for. Um People who want to go faster or further yeah. over long distances on gravel or mixer. I mean, all the same arguments that you would make for an e-mountain bike, I guess you could But I suppose an e-mountain, I feel like an e-mountain bike. bike is about getting you up the hill so that you can have fun going down the hill, whereas this doesn't really feel like that. And I kind of think, I, I, yeah, it just seems, to, it, you know, it's, it's just another, like, a bit like the hover bar. It seems to be adding kind of weight, complexity and sort of, you know, expense, all of these sort of things to something. And, you know, sort of, I don't know, I'm just not... I'm not quite convinced. I've ridden a few electric gravel bikes and I had a lot of fun. Don't get me wrong, they are a total hoot. But the limiting factor always with these bikes, and I should say a good thing, is the speed limit. And 25 kilometres an hour-ish is the uh, the speed limit for pedal-assist bikes in the EU, unless they're licensed. And, you know, I think that's a good thing. They should be limited. But it's so easy to hit that limit on a gravel bike, on anything uh, except the very steepest hills where it feels like a bit of unnecessary complication. But also, we're very healthy young boys and we are fortunate enough to, you know, have the time to go and ride bikes as much as almost as we want. So maybe we're just not the right people for it. And I'm sure whoever does buy it will have a lot of fun on it, even if it does look like a big beluga. I think that's a good a good thought to finish on because we... We celebrate all bikes on Bike Radar, and if electric gravel bikes get more people riding, that's a great thing, and we are absolutely pleased that they exist, whether or not we want to ride them personally. Thank you very much, Jack. Thank you very much, Simon. This has been the Bike Radar podcast. Please do subscribe if you don't already. Give us a five-star rating wherever you listen, and tell all your friends. Thanks very much. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com. Bike Radar.